If the name Bill Dragoo makes you think about DART, Dragoo Adventure Rider Training, and high-level learning, well, that makes sense. Because Bill's earned himself a top reputation in the world of adventure motorcycling, not only as a skilled rider, but as a high-level instructor. But I have to tell you, Bill has not always been the best student. Now, those are his words, not mine. And it was very likely because he wasn't interested, or maybe not that interested, in the subjects. But while that early academic life was wallowing for Bill... He was already developing skills that would get him just about everything he wanted in life and at a high level. And it all starts and ends with a motorcycle. Well, kind of anyway. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Before we get started, I want to thank these fine companies that helped get this episode out today. It's wind pressure that powers the MotoBreeze chain oiler. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm. No nozzles near your sprockets. One ounce of oil gets 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets. MotoBreeze.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA. Comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Googletech filters. Cycle Pump. Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. Sign up for their e-rider newsletter. It's free, maxbmw.com. I'm Sam Manicus. Simon. Simon. Simon Pavey. Brian Field. Jocelyn Snow. Carl Parker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Elspeth Bayer. Jim Hyde. Jansen. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Oops. I just clicked it off. Hold on. Yeah. Test test. Yeah. Okay. My home is Norman. The hometown is Norman, Oklahoma. We're just south of Oklahoma City. I was actually raised in the country out east of here a ways. My first ride was at uh, about four years old with uh, Norman's first police officer on a Harley Davidson, an old panhead, and I rode on the back. What did you do at four years old that you ended up on the back of a policeman's motorcycle? (laughs) That is a good question, isn't it? I'm Bill Dragoo. I'm from Norman, Oklahoma. I'm the founder and owner of DART. That's Dragoo Adventure Rider Training. Bill, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Great to sit down and talk with you. Thanks, Jim. It's good to be here. You have um, you have a, a, an interesting background that I want to dig into here. But, but I want to start by talking about 17 years in the car business. Can you talk <laughs> about that? You know... It's funny how we get into things like that. I was actually teaching flying and working as an aircraft mechanic. I was rebuilding an old FJ-40 Toyota Land Cruiser, putting a Chevy motor and making the classic Chevoda out of it, and buying parts from the local Toyota dealer. So here I was, already a certified aircraft mechanic. I was 19 years old, uh, 19, 20 years old, I guess. 
and I walked into this dealership for probably the umpteenth time and uh, mentioned that uh, I was in transition as I was waiting for a, a fixed-based operator, which was an aircraft repair facility, to finish being constructed. And then um, um, I would be heading back to Ada to, to do this job and had about three or four months while this was under construction. The service manager there said, uh, well, if you need a job, bring your iron on down. So that meant haul my tools down to his dealership and uh, go to work. I did, and uh, it was years later before I left. So you went in and working as a mechanic? Yeah, initially I was a mechanic, um, you know, what, 20-ish years old, and uh, worked on Toyotas and Jeeps, primarily Jeeps. I tend to lean on the Jeep side at that time. And... Uh, after oh a year or so of that, Mr. Fowler, the uh, owner of the dealership, uh, one of the men I respect most in life, uh, who has now passed on, um, asked if I would uh, come up front and sell cars. So I said, sure. So I did that. Uh, after a bit of time, he asked me if I would uh, be his used car manager and various other positions of management on and off through the years. Uh, and I left there a time or two and was asked back, uh, I guess, at least twice uh, after just doing stints in other other businesses, and uh, just kept coming back. So I pretty much uh, raised my family, bought my house, uh, started my first bank account of any consequence uh, working in the car business. So you're working as a mechanic in the back, then you move up to do sales in the front, completely different job. Usually you don't get the crossover. <laughs> There's not, not very often you see people cross over from that kind of goes with a lot of things you, you've done in life because you seem to get into things and you, you do very well with them and then you go on and, and try something else. I do. Uh, and I wound up in the service department ultimately as their uh, service director uh, over a few different dealerships and then finally back at the one large dealership that they had. So really the, the hands-on uh, or working with those who were hands-on on the machinery was my, my really first love. Uh, enjoyed that. I felt like I understood the men and women who worked in the back, and uh, a lot of a lot of times they don't get the respect I felt like they deserved, especially from upper management who comes through the uh, the typical training environment that does not involve the OJT of uh, getting your hands dirty. Mm. Yes, uh, uh, having worked in a dealership many many years ago as a mechanic, uh, I know exactly what you're talking about <laughs> the the division between the two. Um, y you mentioned flight instructor. What is flight instructing? Well, uh, of course, teaching those uh, who don't know how to fly to fly. You, you were 19 years old. Yes, uh, I when I was in high school, I went to uh, we, we had Votech or what now uh, the Vocational Technical Institute, which was affiliated with our high school. And you had a, a, a lot of different options there, aircraft mechanics, uh, uh, automobile mechanics, uh, motorcycle mechanics was not part of it at the time, or I probably would have gone. I had already, uh, or I was working at the motorcycle dealership assembling motorcycles at that time anyway. But uh, half of your day could be spent there um, in some technical trade, learning that trade for the last two years of your high school as your junior and senior year. So I applied for aircraft mechanics. Um, and as my second choice, I applied for auto mechanics. I was, the aircraft mechanics was full. So I had to take my default position. Day one, the instructor came into our automotive class and he said, he gave us a, a just a dress down talk about how it was going to be. And I, I didn't like it. I realized I probably wasn't going to get along with him. I didn't have a problem with authority, but this guy was, was very overbearing. 
And at the first break, I went into the office and I asked uh, the office personnel there if there was any way that I could be switched to aircraft mechanics. Uh, I just wasn't going to be able to make it in this class. And they said, I'm sorry that aircraft mechanics is full. As I was leaving, another young man walked in and apparently all of the instructors had given a similar greeting. He said, I am from aircraft mechanics. I cannot take this class. Can you please switch me to auto? And they switched us. They looked at each other, looked at us and switched us immediately. I spent the, uh, the half of my two years of a junior and senior in high school training to become an aircraft mechanic. I got my airframe mechanics rating there. And then immediately after graduation from high school in 1973, August 6th, actually, uh, the day after, well, actually the morning of my smoking, my last joint, <laughs> if that's pertinent, <laughs> one thirty in the morning, if you want to know the detail, um, I, uh, started school at Spartan school of aeronautics and I not only, uh, finished with my airframe, but my power plant rating. And um, I became an AMP or airframe and power plant mechanic. Is, I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm caught by the significance of smoking your last joint. Was that your last joint, like the last <laughs> joint? Or was that the last <laughs> joint of the evening? I'm not sure what you're referring to here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we are applying a lot of information to a short time, aren't we? <laughs> so um, uh, if we're going to chase that bunny trail, uh, it was a popular thing to do then, as I suppose it's uh, at least as, as popular now. And I realized I made mistakes. Uh, I had mental lapses whenever I, was, whenever I was smoking at the time. And I only smoked for about two years, uh, junior and senior years, high school. But uh, driving back to Tulsa, Oklahoma from uh, Norman, uh, which is about an hour, 50-minute drive with uh, three of my roommates in a little Fiat. I was sitting in the back seat. Uh, we had come back to Oklahoma City from our, our, our room at Spartan, uh, our room in Tulsa there where we were about to start school at Spartan. And uh, my buddy broke into his uh, the bathroom of his house, bathroom window of his house to get this, this uh, pot. <laughs> And on the way back, smoking this joint, I looked at them and I said, you know what, guys, this is my last one. And they laughed at me and they said, why is that? And I said, because this is a serious thing that we're taking on. We're about to become aircraft mechanics. If we make a mistake, somebody might die. I don't want that on my shoulders. And so it's my last one. And somehow I was able to stick to that. I don't know. <laughs> wow. So it was, it was very symbolic. Oh, so yeah. you, you went, you, you're doing aircraft mechanics then. Um, you didn't stay in it very long before you decided to go work at the dealership? Well, no, I didn't. I just, um, you know, that was 73. So I started the dealership in February of 79. So there was a six year span there where uh, I did other things. And uh, part of that was working as a motorcycle mechanic, et cetera. Mm. Where does where does motorcycles go? Where do motorcycles come in, in in for you in life? Well, so as any young man uh, probably who is uh, exposed to them early on, I always had an interest. Um, when I was fourteen, I was working at the Sonic Drive-in in Norman for sixty-five cents an hour. I would walk or ride my bicycle the approximately four miles across town to the Sonic. And I saved almost everything that I could make there, even for that little amount of money. I um, told my mother one day, uh, it was about my 14th birthday, I believe. I know it was in September, which is my, when I was born, um, that I was going to buy a motorcycle. And she said, well, son, you don't have the money to do that. Now, I was an only child. My father wasn't around. And uh, she said, well, I, I really don't want you to have one. And I said, well, I, I want to buy a motorcycle. 
And she said, well, you don't have the money. How are you going to do it? I said, well, I do have the money. I have $250, and that's how much it costs for a uh, used 1969 Yamaha Twin Jet 100 that they happen to have on the floor at the dealership. So she said, well, would you at least have your grandpa go down and look at it with you? And I said, sure. So my granddad and my mom went with me to the to D&D cycle here in Norman, and I looked at that bike, and my granddad looked at one next to it, which was a little Honda 70, a 1970 model CL70. And it was new. And he said, wouldn't you rather have a new one? And he said, he used the term guarantee. He said, wouldn't you like to have one with a guarantee on it? <laughs> and we were country folks. So um, I said, well, yeah, Grandpa, but that's $356. I don't have the money for that. And he looked at uh, Steve Helms, who was uh, the salesman at the time. I, I knew him significantly for years after that. And he said, Mr. We'll take this one right here. So grandpa spotted me the additional hundred plus dollars to, uh, to finish buying that motorcycle with a guarantee on it. So your mom, she wasn't that opposed to it really. Well, she wanted me to have the best life I could, but she wanted to be alive and, and not, uh, you know, something where I was maimed or injured or killed. And she was just fearful, but she wasn't so fearful or so against it that she wouldn't let me push through that, which is what I uh, was able to accomplish. And that day, uh, that very day, that was a Wednesday, um, I had a Boy Scout meeting. Now, how I got that motorcycle to that Boy Scout meeting, because I'd never really had a leg over and done all of the controls, all of the functions at one time. I knew the clutch was in for stop out for go and the brake was down there somewhere. And I managed to get it to the Boy Scout meeting. And out in the parking lot, there was this gravel parking lot. And I had seen someone do this on a movie. And I leaned the bike over in that parking lot, spun this perfect donut, and there were all these girls, my girlfriend Sharon Ledbetter was out there and some others. And that was uh, that was just the coolest thing. And I, I, I spun a straight line through it and then spun two little, uh, you know, the, the angles to the Y and made a peace sign. And that was, I mean, I was a hit. That was it. So people branded me as a good motorcycle rider at that time. And I think I still am working to fulfill that. <laughs> Can you actually do that now with, with one of the bikes you ride now? Oh, I can get about halfway around on my BMW before I drop it on myself. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny, you know, with uh, with no um, no training, and, and so many people have that story. You know, they go and they get their motorcycle license and ride it, me included, without any tra- and not only any training, really no clue. It, it's a wonder you make it this far. You know, the only ones of us here talking about it are the ones who did. There are several who didn't, and uh, I don't mean to make light of that, but uh, I, I didn't learn the value of training until I was significantly older. Yeah, and you know the thing is, too, that, that's changed a lot, and my wife points this out a lot, um, is the, the, de- the traffic density. There wasn't the traffic density back then. We're talking many, many years ago, but um, there, wasn't the, there wasn't the traffic there is today, and, and that makes a huge difference. There used to be a term, it takes a village. And that's in reference to raising a child. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that would be the, the parents, the grandparents, uh, the siblings, and of course, the aunts and uncles, even the neighborhood, uh, all the way out to the village to raise a child. And I think that, 
that philosophy was a whole lot more prevalent in the earlier days than it is now because we've become so much more private, even with social media as it is and as wide open as it is. We come in, we close our doors, and we sometimes often don't even know our neighbors. And so then I think people were watching for us and protecting us more. Uh, Maybe my angel was just flying a little closer over my head at the time, but that's the feeling that I had. Mm. Yeah. And like you say, it, it is the stories of those who have, have been, I guess, lucky, fortunate and, uh, and made it and not had a problem. 17 Indeed. years you, you spent at the dealership and then all of a sudden mm-hmm. you decide that's it. Yeah, I got fired. <laughs> oh, well, that's, that's certainly thing. So 17 years at the dealership, you know, these people intimately and then they fire you. What did you do? <laughs> well, um, Dealerships, if they're successful, they grow. If they grow, they become uh, multifaceted, you know, multiple dealership lines, multiple entities, uh, locations, et cetera. And so the people that I knew the best and the most had, had moved on up the ladder into the corporate offices and a general manager was hired in there. And, you know, you have to give the general manager the latitude to do what he needs to do with his people. And the general manager who came to work there at the time, and I had, I had had several come and go and always worked things out. A couple of them, we butted heads, but they, they began to respect me for what I knew, what I was able to accomplish. And I did them for the same, but this one fella, it didn't work out so well. And, uh, he, he asked me one day, he called me into his office and he said, look, we need to ramp up profits by X percentage. It was a pretty significant percentage over the next year. And he was trying to look good for the dealership. Uh, you know, the executives for the dealership. And I understand that. But uh, he said, are you the man for the job? And I said, no. And he was shocked. I mean, it just stopped him cold and flat footed. He said, well, why not? Why would you tell me that? And I said, well, I would tell you that because it's the truth. There are three entities involved here. You've got the dealership. You've got the, in my case, the mechanic, the personnel, the employees. um, And then you've got the customer. And we currently have a really nice balance with all of those getting what they want. Our gross profit percentage was significantly high relative to the other dealerships around. It was quite good. That is the amount that we took in versus what we paid the uh, mechanics. And the mechanics made good money, but we had a nice balance there. And it, it was just a good a good program all the way around. Dealership got theirs. The mechanics got theirs. Our customer satisfaction index was in the mid to upper 90s all the time. And our market penetration was 66%. With four dealerships in the metro area, that meant that 66% of those who bought a new Toyota in the area came to us for service. So we were doing a lot of things right. And I explained that if we want to ramp up profits at the rate you want, we have to imbalance things. We have to start taking from either the employee or the customer, or both, in order to get the dealership the extra numbers you want that quickly. Mm. We've enjoyed a, a 5 to 15% increase over the past uh, five years running, in fact, was the number. And I said, if that isn't satisfactory, then I don't know what to do. I just don't want to do some of these things that you're wanting to do. And he had a list uh, to try and ramp up the profits, what I felt like was arbitrarily. A month later, I was... Uh, a month, well, just a couple of months later, I was riding my bicycle across the country uh, to uh, find myself, as it were. You're already into long-distance cycling at that point? I was. I was president of uh, the BLN, the Bicycle League of Norman, our local bicycle club here. BLN? BLN, Norman, Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was... um, 
it was a good club. We had maybe 130 to 150 members overall, which was a nice size for us. But uh, yeah, so as I was packing up my cardboard box, literally to leave my desk there at uh, Fowler Toyota in Norman, uh, Dana Walker, one of my service advisors came to me. She said, Bill, what are you going to do? This has been your life for so long. And I said, I don't know. Well, you know what I think I'll do, Dana? I think I'm just going to get on my bicycle and ride it from the uh, Atlantic to the Pacific Ocean, just ride it coast to coast. And I remember the look that she got on her face and she said, you'll do that. You're going to do that. You're a goal-oriented person. And then she just gave me her blessing for doing it. And I, so uh, that was in, uh, gosh, I think it was November or December. Well, it was actually June uh, 2nd whenever I uh, – Flew to Bar Harbor, Maine. I had already shipped my bicycle out there. One of my current instructors, uh, Tobin Vigil, had built that bicycle for me from some spare parts. And I dipped the wheel of it in the Atlantic Ocean. I pedaled for 53 days, dipped it in the uh, Pacific Ocean. Mm. Now, I, I know people who have done a similar trip across Canada in this, in this case. I just never, I've never considered it myself. I did do a little bit of, of cycling distance when I was younger, but, um, well, you know, you know what it is? It's I've passed bicyclists as well riding. You get it all the time, right? And throughout the summertime. And, and when I pass them, it always, it always makes me think about the goal. Like, what are they after? What are they getting from it? Because any one of these vehicles could pick them up and take them where they need to go. It, and what's incredible is many of them try. They stop. They offer you water. When you're a solo bicyclist out there on the road, you're vulnerable. That vulnerability is an opportunity. It's an opening to, to stay in people's homes. They offer you rides. I never accepted a ride, not even up a hill, even when my knees felt like they were being beat with uh, ball-peen hammers. But um, it's, it's a different kind of uh, enjoyment than riding the motorcycle because it is so extremely physical. Um, you know that you're improving yourself as you do it. And, you know, on a motorcycle, you can just sit, uh, not talking down motorcycles. We can talk a lot about the good things about it. But you're generally, if you're on a cross country, you're just sitting there and the thoughts and the music, et cetera, are going through your mind. On the bicycle, you are totally engaged with every inch forward that you make. You have to make that happen. Food, water become fuel uh, and your coolant. And um, it's all about that. It's all about making miles. I remember reading once, and I think this was to do with, with canoeing. It might have been a guy named Bill Mason who is quite well known for um, for the canoeing videos or movies he did way back in the day. He's he's gone now. But um, he was talking about exploring, and, and, you know, you could go to a lake and you could get on a powerboat and they could buzz you around the lake in, you know, maybe an hour and whatever, and you've seen the lake. Um, but then you could might decide that you want to get in a, in a canoe or a kayak and paddle around the lake, and it takes you a lot longer to do, but you've seen it a lot more intimate. You've seen the lake, same as the first person or you could walk around the lake and go even slower and see the lake as well but they're all different sort of grades of adventure and it's kind of like that isn't it when it comes to cycling absolutely uh, in fact you become somewhat of a philosopher when you're out like that solo especially when you don't have other media uh if you're not on the phone a lot, if you aren't listening to music or whatever, you're just in your own head. So I wrote a lot and I hadn't begun writing as a, as a, any kind of professional at that time, but I just wrote down my thoughts. I wrote some poems that were silly um, and some uh, I remember parts of, but one of them I remembered uh, 
riding down this road, I had just crossed Lake Ticonderoga coming into New York from Vermont on this little green ferry that looked like it wouldn't even float in a wind. And I was riding up this hill coming off of the, the landing of the ferry. And I remember it, how steep it was and how hard it was. And I wanted to stop, but I didn't. And I was looking forward and I would see a signpost or some object off in the distance. I would make that my goal. And it would seem like it took forever to get to that goal. And then I noticed when I looked beside me and I was passing poles, they went by relatively quickly. And then when I looked down, I could actually see that the ground looked like it was flying. And, you know, and I, I don't remember the whole poem. I would have to go get it. But it was, you know, starting with, have you ever tried looking at the world from far away, really tried to keep your distance from the life you've lived today? Have you blinded up your eyes to all the things you could have done or accidentally slept beyond the rising of the sun? And it goes on and on. But it, uh, the, the point was that when we have our goals, our sights set too far down the road, it, it's good to goal set, mind you. But when we start looking at what's right in front of us, Life is rich. There's so much that's going on at that particular moment that we can enjoy and appreciate. And that really came over me uh, on that long ride up from uh, Lake Champlain, crossing mm. the, the Ticonderoga. You know, it, it makes me think of paddling. Uh, you know, I'm for, I used to guide trips. And um, with paddling, what we'd often tell the guides when we're, when we're training guides is that you've got to stay in close to the shore because you need to be able to see your progress. If, if you're going to paddle somewhere and you stay out from shore, you don't have those visual cues that, that actually tell you you're moving. And not only that, it's, it's not that interesting. I mean, the, the view is beautiful, but you can only look at the view for so long. You need something else to focus on. So you, you have your long-term goal. You're headed, you know, to whatever island or, or maybe further along the coast, but you need some sort of visual cues as you go along. That's paddling in the shore, in close to the shore. That's where you get that. You're able to look down into the water and see things that come by you. And, and that's sort of kind of what you're saying, what you're talking about. You're dead on. And uh, that, that uh, paddling too far from shore, uh, there's another phrase for that. It's called riding your bicycle across Montana <laughs> because the roads are straight and open and endless and you don't, I mean, you hardly sense motion at all. And, you know, it takes a certain uh, certain inner strength to continue. A lot of people who start a ride like that don't finish. Um they, they, their head is what stops them more often than a physical limitation. So yeah, there's something about learning to appreciate what's around you, what's close to you and able to help that fuel you. You've mentioned several times now as we're talking about goals and um, right back from smoking your last joint and on up. Have you always been a goal setter? I think I have to a degree. Uh, I've probably softened that a little bit lately. But, uh, you know, when I was, um, I guess I was 11 when I got in Boy Scouts, 1966. I'm looking over at my Boy Scout book right now. Um, you still have I, your Boy Scout book? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I have it right there, the the badge, um, the my Eagle Scout badge. But wow. I remember the first day in uh, Troop 285, uh, Dr. Haas, the uh, scoutmaster, asked, uh, how many of you are going to be Eagle Scouts? And Vester Adams, a friend of mine in uh, second and third grade, uh, and myself, we had maintained contact. We were obviously up in about sixth grade at that time. 
Vester and I both raised our hands, and we were the only two Eagle Scouts from Troop 285 uh, up until, as far as I know, until it dissolved. Now that if, if that's if someone else has, uh, my apologies, but I don't recall anyone else ever doing that in that troop. We were kind of a low budget troop, and uh, but I just I wanted to finish what I'd started. Hmm. C- can you remember the the first, or was that was was that your first sort of? Uh, I guess realization that that the goals are are sort of worth setting and and going for. Yeah, probably so. Um, as far as a significant memory right now, um, and of course I was fourteen when I got my eagle, so I was goal setting for uh, for the merit badges before that, and every one was just a fabulous accomplishment. It was like winning a race every time I would complete a merit badge. And I don't remember how many it took, quite a few to get to be an eagle. And uh, so, you know, life was teaching me some amazing things and it was tricking me into learning them. In school, I didn't do as well. Uh, Academically, I was very average. Um, Although it's funny, later uh, in college and trying to study engineering, my my English teachers kept saying, you need to write. And I thought, well, that's girl stuff. You know, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I want to be an engineer. I was terrible at math and I was terrible at uh, physics and uh, chemistry. But uh, uh, that goal never never did see fruition. I'm sure the scout, uh, any scout person, any scout leader from back in the day would be very pleased to hear that they've had that sort of influence on you. Because obviously that's something, the reason I ask about that is because it, it appears to me that something that sort of stuck with you through life, you, you, you are, I mean, have you, have you been coined an overachiever? No. Well, not with any credibility, I don't think. There are some people who say that. People are comp- Complimentary, you know, when they like you, they're complimentary. So I have heard that before. Uh, I've heard that I'm a perfectionist before and all, but none of those things uh, is actually true because uh, I'm a messy guy and uh, I just kind of ping from one thing to another as I enjoy them. You um, you got into motorcycling in a big way. How did you do that? Well, well, 14. So. Uh, Gosh, I hadn't even turned 15 yet. I had a few motorcycles from that Honda 70, uh, Kawasaki 350 Bighorn that actually got pretty good, uh, according to our local uh, hoodlums uh, or hooligans. Um, uh, And then I bought a a little Yamaha 1969 125 Enduro, a little AT1 from a fella, Norman Heineke, a fella who was actually the best man at my wedding. and he was a motocross racer. He was the first one I'd ever seen race a motocross. And I, I went out and I, I practiced with Norm a few times. He was expert level. And I went out and uh, raced uh, without my mother knowing it because she also forbid me from racing when I asked her if I could. And I took third place. There were 21 riders that day up at Yukon and uh, I raced three heats and uh, wound up with a third overall and brought a trophy home and had to show it to my mom. She said, she looked at me very sternly and said, is that yours? And I said, yes. I assume you want it. I said, yes. Are you going to race again? Yes. And she said, can I watch? (laughs) I said, well, of course. And from that point, and in fact, I have a story, uh, my biggest fan, but my mom became my biggest fan. So I just kept racing, uh, you know, as amateur and then as experts. And uh, I never won anything big. I mean, I won a lot of races, but I, I 
ended up third in the state championship series that we had back in the early 70s. And then I moved on because that's when I went to Spartan School of Aeronautics and discovered airplanes and girls and those other things. After the break, Bill's going to share some of his secret sauce in his training, as well as maybe some from the BMW training school. Stay with us. IMS Products is well known in the racing community for producing quality products. In fact, Almost every major off-road champion in the past two decades has used an IMS product. And apparently that's not just in the U.S. either. IMS is known around the world, having earned a solid reputation for producing and supplying riders with quality fuel tanks, foot pegs, shifters, all since 1976. Now, they make a wide variety of foot pegs that are bound to cover whatever you are after in foot pegs. Um, they've got everything from their large platforms, the ADV 1s and 2s, right on down to smaller foot pegs with sharper teeth. All made with CAST certified 17-4 stainless steel. They use a certified heat treating process. They're built in the USA. And get this, they're warranted for life. Now, I'm riding on IMS pegs now. And I'll tell you, the control difference that I felt was immediate. I've tried a few different sets. Um, all seem similar, but um, as far as control-wise, the control, they give me the connection, they give me to the bike. But man, when I got on the bike that first time, it was just incredible, the difference that I felt. I felt like I was really connected to the bike in a way I had never felt before that. Um, drop by their website, imsproducts.com. Drop them a line. Let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. And if you have any trouble picking out the pegs, ask them to give you a hand with it. imsproducts.com. The Red Rock Garage is becoming one of those must-stop locations in British Columbia, Canada. It's located in Beaverdale, British Columbia, on Highway 33. The Red Rock Garage is a coffee shop with a motorcycle addiction. Now, they not only have coffee there, they also have a B&B. They've got a campground, a campground there and, uh, and also some accommodations. But they are located in some of the most stunning riding anywhere, both pavement and dirt. So for your upcoming adventure this year, look up the Red Rock Garage in Beaverdale, British Columbia. Go by their website. Their website is redrockgarage.ca. Of course, the .ca means Canada. And um, make sure you let them know that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio when you drop in, fuel up, grab a cup of coffee, and and check out why riders are going there. redrockgarage.ca, Beaverdale, British Columbia, Canada. You ended up um, you end up in the position you are now. I mean, you, you're teaching people how to ride adventure bikes. How does it go from you know your hobby to your profession? Well, I had a bit of a hiatus. Um, a fellow was badly hurt who worked for me uh, uh, in one of the car dealerships, and so I sold all the motorcycles that I had. Uh, I had three sons, and we had bikes for two of those three, the older two, and decided to get away from that and race sailboats instead. So my wife and I, my boy's mom and I raced sailboats and stayed active with fun things like that. And then when I, uh, uh, I was divorced for about eight years. And during that period, I got back into motorcycles, but Harley Davidson's. And 
when I met the woman I'm married to now, Susan, um, she liked motorcycles. She had grown up in, uh, in a motorcycle uh, loving family and she wanted a little dirt bike. So we wound up, wound up getting her, uh, a, a, let's see, I guess we got her a BMW first, an F650 GS. For, no, excuse me. No, we went through some others. Went through a Harley, went through a Triumph Bonneville. I'm sorry, yeah. And then wound up with this BMW. So uh, coming to the answer of your question, how did this, uh, how did I get into this training thing? Well, let's move forward to about 2008. Susan and I are active in motorcycling and I was just starting to write and was invited to uh, the Rawhide Adventure Riders Challenge. It was the second event that they had had like that out in Castaic, California. And I went out there to cover uh, a story for a magazine, for ADV uh, Moto uh, Magazine. And it was owned by someone other than uh, uh, Carl, who owns it now. And um, so in a three-day event in competing, I kind of dug up, dredged up my old trials experience and some of my old motocross experience. I borrowed a KTM 950 Super Enduro that I'd never ridden before. And there were around probably 80 or 90 total participants in this. Three days, I'd made three errors. Uh, I had no dabs the first day, won the second day, two the third day, and I won the event, first place. And that put me on the map with BMW uh, because later that year, they had the first ever GS trophy, which was to be held in Tunisia, North Africa. And the United States had been invited. They had initially declined. Uh, the marketing director had declined. Peter DeWall, who was the uh, new vice president of BMW Motorrad that year, uh, had a different plan. He decided that the United States would be involved. And his marketing department, of course, got on board with that. They began looking frantically for someone who could compete from the United States. They had a selection process that had two or three different levels. Uh, I wound up at Spartanburg, South Carolina with uh, five other individuals, one female and uh, uh, four other guys. And we competed for the top three spots for the GS Trophy. I scored well, but didn't make the final cut. And, it, it, you know, I was crushed. I mean, here I was 50-some years old, thought this was my last chance to represent my country in anything. I uh, never expected even to be given a, an opportunity to do that. So it was already an honor to be one of those six. But uh, two years later, I came back and uh, I actually won a place on the GS Trophy team. So, yeah. And, and that took you to Africa? That took me to South Africa in 2010. And we didn't win the event, but just, you know, as everyone who has ever experienced the GS Trophy has stated, you win if you are even involved in any way in that, that uh, tremendous honor. So at, around that time, I was being asked, uh, I was doing some stories uh, on tour companies in Bolivia and in Colombia. And I'd been invited to go down there and, and uh, some, some of these guys had seen my writing and liked what I did and said, would you do something for us? We'll comp you for this trip if you'll uh, come down and do a story on our tour company and, uh, and writing with us. So I did that. Well, while in Bolivia, I was asked to um, come back and teach. These fellows were riding, they were wealthy people riding expensive BMW motorcycles and they were falling and hurting themselves on these uh, extremely rough roads down there. They said, would you please come back and teach us to ride them? Well, I said, sure, if you'll get me down there. I didn't have a lot of money and uh, so just, yeah, just get me down there. And they did repeatedly. 
Well, I had developed a curriculum for a good friend of mine, Skip Mascora, who has Moto Discovery, uh, previously Ponto Via Tours, a fellow that I had wanted to work for since I had met many years ago on a Harley Davidson. And uh, I don't think he even knew I existed for for many, many years. But we ended up meeting up again later at uh, some motorcycle events. And he had said, Bill, would you consider working with me to develop a training program for my tour company? And I worked on it, kind of built the, a curriculum. Uh, the distances, he lived in San Antonio. I lived in Norman, Oklahoma. Uh, there were just some logistical issues with doing that. And I didn't really know what I was doing anyway beyond the teaching part. I was a flight instructor. And I had taught canoeing as a Boy Scout. I knew how to teach, but I didn't really know about teaching motorcycles. So I took that curriculum, morphed it into something that I could do there in Bolivia, and they loved it. People here began to ask, Bill, what are you going to teach here? And I said, well, you've got Rawhide on the West Coast. You have the Performance Center on the East Coast. There's some great training schools out here. Who wants it in Oklahoma? Well, would you try? So I did. It was um, in August uh, 2011 or 12. Um, and it was 112 degrees on the South Canadian River. Of the six men who were out there uh, as my vict- my students, excuse me, uh, <laughs> three of them uh, stopped, stood in the shade. They were the smart ones, and they watched the rest of us melt. But they loved the course. I had another one. We had more students, and it, it just took off incredibly rapidly, uh, I guess you could say, to what it is now. What was so special about it? What were you teaching? What, what was your technique or, or what were you showing the people that was so unique? Well, I mean, I was a, a decent rider. A lot of people who um, have a school are accomplished riders. I mean, you know, you don't have to necessarily be if you can collect good talent. But I was a good rider, well above average. And what I tried to do was to mimic what I had done to win the Adventure Rider Challenge, and that is to apply trial skills primarily to riding big, heavy motorcycles. So your tracking, your choice of line, your ability to use clutch brake throttle uh, together to put the bike, what I call intention, where the clutch brake or pulling or clutch throttle, excuse me, are pulling against the brake, uh, which helps to stabilize the bike. Uh, All of these things were natural for me. And so I broke that down and began to teach that to others. And very quickly, I saw successes in that. I saw major transitions in their ability to ride without putting their feet down and without falling over. And then over increasingly difficult terrain, up and down hills, side hills and things, um, I began to analyze what I did that worked as a flight instructor, I knew how to do that. Um, and then I also became an MSF instructor, Motorcycle Safety Foundation, uh, rider coach, they call them. And they have a very good program for uh, adult education principles. And through that and through some other things that I had done over the years in management and working with others, I just combl- combined all of this into a kind of a conglomerate. And it... I don't remember very many what I would call faux pas in the teaching. But in 2017, I wanted to add credential to what I do. So uh, I invested in going to Hecklingen, Germany, to BMW Motorrad's uh, official international off-road training school and uh, successfully completing the course there. uh, That was a challenge. And 
the, the, one of the greatest challenges was just getting accepted to go. It's not something you just throw your hat in the ring and your money in the, in the till there and say, I want to go do this. And it, it costs a lot of money. Oh, so you, but, you're not just booking this like a, like you would a vacation. You actually have to no. pass their, their, what they have for basic requirements. Right. It's not like uh, going online, finding Dart and saying, okay, I want to I become a better writer. I will enroll in this Dart training and uh, go through their level one and two class or go through their level three class and go do BDRs better. Uh, you have to be accepted. You have to go up the chain of command through uh, the uh, North American marketing program offices here. You have to be recommended by someone local. Uh, usually it's a dealer and then uh, – some of the uh, dealer support personnel from BMW Motorrad, their district representative, uh, was able to help me get started here. And then once you're accepted, um, you start studying and eventually you pack your stuff and you go to Germany. Do you, now that you've done the, you're, you're a certified BMW instructor, what is your certification? I am, uh, let me see what to actually call it here. Well, I, w without digging it out, it's just up above my shoulder, but it's a, an off-road, internationally certified off-road instructor. Okay. So you're an, you're an instructor. Do, now that you've taken the course, it, is there something different? Is there some sort of magic uh, movement, some sort of secret sauce that BMW has that you didn't have before you went? That is a wonderful question. And it was one of the biggest surprises of my training, how similar what I did was to what was to what they do. Um, some of the exercises that I had actually broke the training down a little bit more than what I felt like they did. Uh, and in some cases, I learned that that wasn't completely necessary to the degree they did. Uh, I began to give more credibility to my students uh, as able to leap over some of those uh, those minor gaps. And then some of what I learned was that they had some gaps. And I'll never forget sitting with uh, Joe and Mike, and goodness, I'm trying to remember the last names on both, and I, I don't remember. I apologize, gentlemen, if you hear this, but um, one of the things that they said, they looked at me and they, they said, uh, how do you think you did? And this was in the writing portion of the training. I said, I think I did pretty well. And I knew I had aced it. I, I, in, in two complete rounds of eight elements of testing, I knew that I had had a perfect score in the writing. And they said, well, not quite. And I said, what do you mean? And they well, on, on one downhill section, I applied a little too much rear brake and skidded around the turn instead of tracking through the turn. Mm -hmm. And they wanted you to be controlled. They didn't tell you that up front. They just expected you to, I guess, do that. But uh, anyway, we all laughed about that. But they said, you know, we learned a lot from you. And I was, I was floored. I was flabbergasted when these men of this caliber, who I had nothing but the utmost respect for, said that. And they also cautioned me. They said, be careful what you change from the program because you are, uh, you're applying for a certification as a BMW Motor Ad instructor. It needs to look like that whenever you do it. So, mm. yeah. Yeah, so they want you to teach it their way, um, even if your way might be a little better. Uh, but, but I respect that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you if you're teaching under anyone's banner, they want it to look like what they began. If you yeah, have, if it has their name on it, and we largely do. I won't say that it's perfect or it's exactly like what they teach. Um, no two schools teach exactly the same. There are only a handful of certified instructors in the United States. Um, most of the instructors here in the United States just kind of are good writers. Uh, they happen to be good with people. If they're successful, or if 
if they're going to be successful, uh, it will show. I mean, the proof's in the pudding, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. If they were good at what they did and they're good at teaching, yeah, they'll be successful if they can halfway run a business. Mm. Um, you mentioned something a minute ago that caught my ear when you said about what you were teaching. This was before you went to the BMW training school. You came up with a, a system of, of teaching people to use the brakes to resist the, the movement of the bike against the, the clutch and, and the engine. This is interesting because it catches me because this is something that I thought I had developed, uh, at least I did for myself, back when I was in my, my early 20s or, or late teens with four-wheeling. And then I found the application of um, loading up the brakes and loading up the gas, whether it's a standard or automatic, added much more control in technical situations. And I carried that over into motorcycle riding, but I've talked to some instructors who who don't teach that at all. Is that some of the... the um, the crossover that you found between you and the BMW school that they are, they do lean towards that style of teaching. They didn't emphasize that a lot. Uh, but in police motor training, uh, you do get that quite a bit. Uh, it's not in every exercise, but in low speed exercises, that is one of the things that's, uh, that's done. Uh, and I call it bike intention or putting the motorcycle in tension and that tension being the, clutch and throttle, which clutch and throttle are married. They are a unit. Uh, the clutch is no good without the throttle. And they need to have a relationship that suggests that whatever the clutch is going to ask for, the throttle has already pre-approved, that there is enough in that bank account that there will not be a withdrawal that will exceed that or you'll have a stall. So you have that. And then you apply tension with typically and initially the rear brake. It can be done with either one, but typically the rear brake because the bike is a little more stable, a little more easy to control, especially in a turn then. Uh, and then suddenly it's as stable as leaning against a building on one leg. And I do a, I do a little uh, um, kind of a, a run up to this exercise with the students. And we, we make, we have two things that we, we talk about. One is clutch, not crutch. When you're making a tight turn and you're leaning and you have a tendency to, to want to put a foot down, all our lives, we've been putting a foot in front of the other or putting a foot to the side to regain our balance. Well, we're going to, we're going to call that foot the crutch. And we want to replace that crutch with something that rhymes with it, that being the clutch. So when you feel that urge to fall over or put a foot down and prevent it, instead, we engage the clutch just a little bit more with sufficient throttle that the motorcycle doesn't die. And that picks the bike right back up, all well and good. But when we're wanting to turn a little tighter, if we're leaning, if we engage just a little bit more rear brake, as I said, front will work too. That's a slightly more advanced. But if you engage a little bit more brake as you're turning, the motorcycle turns in. It begins to turn tighter. Now, all of these things are plus or minus peg weight, uh, body position, how we're applying pressure to the pegs, things like that. But generally speaking, you can freeze your bike in a counterbalance position. You can apply a little bit more rear brake in a turn. The bike will turn tighter. You can release the clutch and the bike will stand up or open up the width of the turn. So as we pre prepare to perform this exercise, we go around and we rename all of our students. Let's say there are a dozen students. I go to each one and I name them clutch, brake, clutch, brake, clutch, brake. So we have six of each. The clutches line up on one side facing the brakes on the other. They stand about two feet apart. They put their hands up in the air and put their palms together. Now, we're going to talk about this bike in tension thing. They begin to take a step back. The 
the clutches step back from the brake. Remember, clutch is married to throttle, so clutch has a little bit of throttle applied there as well, so it's it's active. And the farther they step back, and once their feet are parallel to one another, they have to rely on their partner. The clutch must rely on the brake and, and vice versa in order to maintain stability. If either one lets go, as in, if you pull the clutch all the way in or you stomp on the brake or release it, you throw that entire London Bridge out of balance. Mm, they're leaning that, against each other on their hands. Yeah, they're leaning on their hands. And we get them down to the point that they're somewhat uncomfortable. And then we bring them back together about a step. And then they begin to wave or rock back and forth a little bit. And it's a delicate balance, but it's a significant balance. And they begin to see the relationship that if you were simply leaning out there, as in falling on one another, and you had, say, a tall person and a short person, then you'll probably overpower the other one. So if you're leaning into a turn and you're you're not using the brake at all, you're just leaning, 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 you want to dab, you fear falling over, and your clutch is pulled in tight, white knuckle, you throw the clutch out, suddenly you can get a spin or you can get an imbalanced condition that can either throw you one way or the other, even spin the bike out and make you fall. So, so you're doing sort of an active physical metaphor to teach the relationship between the, the brake and the clutch. Yes. It also is an icebreaker. Uh, it's a really fun little activity. And we, we have a few of these things that we do from time to time with students. But yeah, it uh, just lets the students see that relationship between clutch and brake and how it works when they're actually on the bike. And then I go and I might do um, a demonstration. I don't do all my demos. Uh, I have a lot of my instructors are, are getting very, very good and they will do the demos. But if I want to do a full bar lock turn and, and really try to nail it, then I'll usually do a demonstration and I'll just tell them I'm simulating welding the handlebars to the lock. And it's not going to change, but my, the diameter of my circle may change. It may be tighter. It may be wider. Well, how can you do that without turning the bars? Well, because of the conicity of the tire, the cone shapeness of it as you lean it, because of the geometry of the motorcycle, the more it leans, the tighter the turn will be. So I can add brake and ease the clutch in just a little bit. The bike leans more, it turns tighter, and then I can ease off the brake, let the clutch out some of the bike straightens up, and if I luck out that I didn't come off the bar lock, I can show a little bit wider diameter turn. You mentioned that um, when you were on the course there for getting your BMW certification, they, they said about coming down the hill and using a bit too much brake. They're, they're very much into using front brake only for downhill. Is that right? The Germans are very precise uh, and how they do did a lot of things. You know, I have a lot of respect for them from engineering to, to the way they keep their, their homes. But uh, taking care of the land is a big part of what we like to teach and what it seems they like to teach. So rather than rutting things up, grinding and all this, um, they they want to keep the wheels rolling. And now we didn't get into the, uh, I guess, all of the philosophy of why they didn't want me to skid that, that turn. But if you saw the downhill, if you saw the turn, it sure seemed to make sense at the time. <laughs> but... Um, um, as far as not using rear brake, I have had instructors, I can't say the Germans told me this, but I've had other instructors say they teach their students not to use the rear brake on a downhill because they'll slide. Well, my philosophy is teach them to use it, teach them to deal with the slide and to mitigate that with 
proper application of just enough brake. Because let's say the, you know, we, we all know the front brake, people pick a number 70%, 80%. That's, that's that percentage of our stopping power, right? That depends on how quickly we're stopping the surface that we have, the tire condition, uh, et cetera. But I think it's easily understood that the front brake can be anywhere from maybe 70 to 100% of your braking effectiveness. But let's say that both wheels are touching the ground. You're rolling down a hill and you are, you're trying to slow down enough to be able to exit to the right or to the left rather than continuing straight ahead. There's a drop off or whatever. You have to maintain control. Well, do you really want to give up? 5, 10, 15% of your braking, even if it's only that. No, you don't. And in fact, the rear brake can not only become braking as a very low but slight drag, it can also become effective as helping you steer if you do need to have a little bit of a skid one way or the other, which is what I did in my in my, my failure <laughs> in Germany. So there are a lot of reasons that I do teach using the rear brake. Uh, I respect those instructors who don't teach that because I think what they're saying is let's do that at the next level or something. I, I don't know. I haven't gotten too deep into it with them. But the main thing is they said students stall the engine or they skid and lose control. I just haven't found that to be a problem for me too much with the students. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And you would think learning to modulate the rear brake would be just part of learning to control the bike. Because when you're coming down the hill without digging into it and making this all, all about uh, riding technique, when you're coming down the hill, even when the bike is in gear and the clutch is out, you are braking. That is engine braking. So it's, it's the exact same thing as, as it's applying a certain amount of rear brake. It's true. And uh, a lot of people, in fact, uh, BMW Motorrad taught to use engine braking for the initial downhill, now not downhill braking, but the initial downhill um, exercise that they did, just how to go uphills, how to go downhills. They're downhill, clutch out, roll through it. The The challenge with that is uh, when it starts getting more technical, you quickly go slower than the motorcycle wants to go with the clutch out. You're, you're actually beginning to drag the motor down or even potentially stall the motor if you leave that clutch out. So for me, clutch in, feathering the rear brake, feathering the front brake, modulating it as necessary to prevent skidding on either one. You mentioned about your cycling trip that you did and the, the long trip that you did and how you were you were very much into it. There's some parallels between motorcycling and bicycle riding that can be drawn there. I think that's true. Um, as a mountain bike, racer. I, I began racing mountain bikes in 2000, I guess, and I won the state championship my first year out. Came back the second year, I'd moved up uh, a level and I won again and then I quit. It's um, good to uh, quit when you're on top, for sure. That's what I, the, that isn't why I did it, but, but yeah, uh, <laughs> again, moving on to other things. Actually, the motorcycles began to take over. But uh, there are a tremendous amount of parallels and, you know, a bicycle exacerbates everything you feel on a motorcycle, especially in braking and especially in downhill braking. You know, when you have a, motor, a bicycle that weighs 20 pounds plus or minus five, six pounds um, and you over brake with a, especially the powerful brakes, uh, front brakes on bicycles now, you know it real quick. Mm -hmm. You're going over. You know, so that probably taught a lot of the nuance of braking to me and helped me become more efficient with the braking, even for the motorcycle because of being a mountain bike racer. Yeah. And what a way to, to really understand what the brakes are doing too, than with the mountain bike, you know, in low gear and applying the brakes and just doing, you were talking about before the slow speed maneuvering on the mountain bike, that gives you a real feel for what's happening with those brakes. I remember when we, uh, 
some of us did videos before the uh, GS Trophy competition in 2010, and I had a bicycle and I stood in my uh, in my driveway, and I was doing a track stand. And of course, I had the uh, the pedal pushing forward and was holding the brake, and I had a little uphill section. And I would roll forwards and backwards and forwards and backwards and never go anywhere. And I had this video going for something like a minute and a half, um, had my, my son doing the video. And at one point, as I'm talking and doing this track stand and asking, you know, I really need some help on how to train for the GS Trophy. I realize it's technical. I went through this whole line of baloney about it. And then I let go with my left hand and I was holding my chin with my right hand and the, had one finger on the front brake and forwards and backwards. And the bicycle just lended itself to this. It was a perfect bike for it, but it was very easy to balance like that. Um, that was a bike intention. It was, uh, the tension can be against the brake. It can be a tension against a hill. It can be a tension against the terrain, but when it's dragging against something like that, uh, to either impede progress to the point of zero or very near zero, it's amazing, especially if you're turning how, how uh, stable that bike can become. So yeah, mountain bike and, and, uh, motorcycle can certainly cross over. Another parallel um, is packing, because you really learned about packing when it came to riding a bicycle. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. My bicycle, uh, with all of its gear, weighed 56 pounds um, whenever I left uh, Bar Harbor, Maine, heading for Anacortes, Washington. Camping gear, everything. Everything. That was what I didn't carry full meals. I would stop for meals along the way. Usually, I would carry... um, uh, good snacks, and I carried only two bottles of water with me because there was always some place to get water, or someone would stop and give it to me a few times. So I, I learned to pack light. And what's funny is I shipped five pounds home. So I started with 56, ended up with 51 pounds. Um, but I carried a bivy sack and a sleeping bag, no tent, uh, very minimal clothing. Uh, you know, drag you through all the all that it was, although it wasn't much, but uh, just what you need. And you really do learn something about what you absolutely have to have uh, when you're doing a bicycle trip like that. And I used to teach these seminars for a backwoods equipment company, an outfitter that was uh, based out of Austin, Texas. And uh, they had a facility here in Norman called Packet Light, Packet Tight. And I did this uh, from the perspective of a cross-country motorcyclist and how we could we could use the things that we learned both from backpacking and from cycling to uh, our motorcycle travel. Now, the, the real irony here is that I also do overlanding. Uh, my wife and I write and uh, do a lot of traveling relative to the, to the four-wheel overland community. And uh, somehow we didn't get that. That's a gene for the, for the overlanding. We bring more stuff. Well, it's that typical thing, isn't it? You hear people talk about, you know, the bigger your pannier, the more stuff you take. Yeah. Well, I might need that. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, Especially when it comes to four-wheel drive because you, you the weight, um, although it does catch up with you, you know, it seems you can throw a lot in without noticing too much. I remember a story I did called Redline Your Life for a um, – a couple of ladies up in the, the Northwest, uh, Stephanie Terrian and Shaw Marie Wilson, um, they had set a record for the most backcountry discovery routes completed in a, a certain period of time at that time. And one of the things that uh, that uh, Stephanie had spoken about was that, uh, you know, I just tried to take the minimum, but a few things I thought were essential. And she said, it wasn't long before I sent that yellow sundress home. 
<laughs> well, we all have our our things that we want to take, right? We all have our jealous interests. What, what do you think? What do you think the biggest mistake is for people for packing? I mean, everybody overpacks. So that's just a, it. Doesn't matter how many years you've done it. Um, it seems that you you find yourself overpacking. But what do you think the biggest mistakes are? Well, I think it's a lot like childbirth. For one, um, you know. There would never be uh, siblings if women ever remembered how the first one went. <laughs> uh, but no, um, you know, I think being willing to write things down and remember what it was you actually needed. Forget writing down the things you didn't need. Write down only the things you actually used when you're traveling. And then certainly there may be some other things that it just wouldn't be wise to be without. You may not have needed your spot tracker, but at this day and time, it's that accessible. You probably ought to have one. Uh, same thing for a flat repair kit. Just because you didn't have a flat doesn't mean you shouldn't bring a repair kit for yourself for some other poor soul you might need to help along the way. Um, but keep that to a minimum. Don't talk yourself into things you might decide to bring, but try to talk yourself out of things. Mm, I really like what you said there about, you know, don't just cut stuff out because you haven't used it. There are things that, yeah, it makes sense to have with you just in case. That's, that's your backup. Yeah, I wrote a story one time called The Turkey Scout, talking about all the things that uh, people carry with them. And, uh, I, you know, I, I was a KLR rider for a, a, a number of years here with my KLR 650 Kawasaki. And so I was making fun of these, uh, the KLR guys, because they have the four inch PVC tube with the two caps on the front, and they have two of them on the back. And then they have the, uh, you know, their cables bristling. It looks like a porcupine from every place that a cable might be is the second cable on that, uh, on that bike. Um, just because we might need it, you know, they're taped one cable taped to the other one, et cetera, tire irons, uh, everywhere. And they're always the guys that you want to be, to stumble across if you are on the trail and you break down or you want them to stumble across you. But sometimes they're not the most fun ones to ride with because they, they're kind of laden with those bikes. So in the story of the Turkey Scout, uh, I actually left my, my spare inner tube at home. And paid for it? Yeah. Eight flats within a period of time. Finally, my wife came, came and rescued me. <laughs> well, Bill, I've had a lot of fun talking with you. Thank you very much for coming on the show and, and sharing your story. Well, thank you, Jim. I enjoyed it. I, I really appreciate your interest and in, uh, having me on. That was Bill Dragoo from uh, his base in Oklahoma. You can find out more about Bill at his website, BillDragoo.com. And of course, that link is in the show notes along with some photographs and um, actually that, you know, that poem that you heard him start to read there? We've got that on the website and a couple other things. Drop by our website and look at the show notes for this episode. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com. Also, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com, Green Chili Adventure Gear at greenchiliadv.com, and Moto Breeze Chain Oilers at motobreeze.com. Hey, you do us a great favor. If anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime you see them anywhere, you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio.
Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to you. Thank you very much for being a part of this and to our producer, Elizabeth Martin. Now, remember, all of our episodes can be heard on our website, and we have another show called ARR Raw that you've got to listen to as well, but you need to subscribe separately. So you can find it anywhere you find podcasts, but you can also find that on the website. And then one last thing, we need your support. This is built on a model of some advertising and listener support to make the whole thing work. We need you to drop by the website, click on the support button, and check the things that we've got there. We would love it if you consider being a regular supporter through our patron program, um, but uh, we've got a bunch of different things there. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. Otherwise, I'll talk to you next week. Thanks very much. My name's Jim Martin. Hi, this is Jeremy Craker. You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 